Tonight, you'll see the Lord declares, I am the good shepherd. That's what he said in John chapter 10. That's where we'll be. But before we get there, I wanted to uh, speak to you about the connection between John chapter 9 and John chapter 10. There's a lot of discussion about it. The subject in John chapter 9, you remember, was the healing of a man blind from birth. Now we're jumping to what seems to be an entirely different subject, Jesus, the good shepherd. But I don't think it's, it's that kind of jump at all. I want to show you how I think John chapter 9 corresponds very precisely to John chapter 10. In John chapter 9, as I mentioned, a man who was blind from birth was suddenly, miraculously and graciously healed by the Lord Jesus. It was in an unusual way, as you remember. Uh, the Lord applied a mixture of mud and a spittle and had the man cleanse himself in the pool of Siloam. And now for the first time in his life, it's a little hard to imagine for those of us who have sight, but for the first time in this a hitherto sightless man, now he could see shapes and sizes and colors and the sun and trees, and he could see faces for the first time, including the faces, imagine, of his own family members. Not only that, he, for the first time, not with these eyes, but with the eyes of his heart, the eyes of faith, was able to behold, for the first time, Jesus, the Son of God, as his personal Messiah and Savior. And he was so excited about this that he, after declaring his belief in the Lord Jesus, began to worship him as a lifestyle. Now, this did not go over very big with his shepherds, that is to say, the Jewish religious leaders who he should have been able to trust. But upon his acceptance of the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus, false shepherds threw him out of the synagogue, which had the effect of ostracizing him from the entire community. It was, a, it was a mean form of excommunication because this man refused to listen to the voices of these Jewish religious leaders. And as one excommunicated from the temple, from the synagogue, he would, he would have no conversation whatsoever with any other members of the Jewish community. It was absolutely forbidden. He accepts the Lord Jesus, and is rejected by these false shepherds. And so he should have expected more from them, but this is what he got. And this kind of religious hypocrisy in high places is uh, absolutely uh, antagonistic to the ways of the good shepherd. In fact, thousands of years before this, the Lord spoke through a prophet named Ezekiel, you've heard of him, who in chapter 34 recorded for us the Lord's word-for-word -word stiff indictment on the false religious leaders, the false shepherds of the house of Israel. And it's a little lengthy, but bear with me. I want to read this to you. It's Ezekiel chapter 34. Then the word of the Lord came to me, that is Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. 
Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you've not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore. But I will deliver my flock from their mouths so that they will not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. Folks, that's Israel. That's modern-day Israel. Modern-day Israel is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 34. And I will feed them on the mountain of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I'll feed them with good pasture. You go to Israel today on what's called the Golan Heights. It's uh, the, the, uh, uh, called by different names in the Old Testament. Have you heard the expression, the cows of Bashan? It's called Golan Heights is ancient Bashan. It was a very fertile agricultural area. If you go to Israel today with all that's going on still, you would not believe what's being produced on the hills and mountains in Israel and even in the desert today in direct fulfillment of what God, the good shepherd, says here in Ezekiel 34. He said, I will bring them to the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I'll feed them in good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. The shepherds of Israel, the Jewish religious leaders, have led the sheep astray. They've not cared for them. They've not healed them. They've not sought them. In fact, they have riched themselves on the backs of the sheep allotted to their charge. And through Ezekiel, God says prophetically, a day is coming when he, God himself, will be Israel's shepherd because the shepherds of Israel have failed so miserably. God says, I'll take over. I will be their shepherd. And so he says at the end of chapter 34, as we read, I'll feed, possess a pronoun, my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. Well, folks, the advent of that day began when Jesus, the good shepherd, came here on earth. And so now we can see, I think, pretty clearly that chapter 9 and chapter 10 are not discrepant. You can see the connection. Here it is. John chapter 9 speaks about false shepherds of Israel. John chapter 10 will introduce us to the good shepherd of Israel. Now let's take a look. John chapter 10, beginning at the beginning, verse 1. Here's how it begins in most Bibles. Truly, truly, or verily, verily. Do you have that? Something like that in yours? I hope so. If not, you need a new Bible. Uh, you know what that, those words literally are? It's literally amen and amen. Isn't that weird? In the original language, those are the words, amen and amen. We usually affix our amen 
at the end of someone's prayer or statement of truth. That's a good thing. When we say amen to a song, a prayer, a sermon, something like that, we are saying, yes, indeed, that is true. I believe in it. Well, the Lord Jesus is affixing his amen right at the beginning of his statement. He's saying, what I'm about to tell you, listen up, is true to the max. He's amening his own statement. Amen, amen. And you know who he's talking to? The Jewish religious leaders. Remember, there's continuity between chapter 9 and chapter 10. He's saying to them, verse 1, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door is kind of a figure of speech. You'll see here it's about the shepherd and the sheep fold. He who enters does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way. Who's he? He's a thief and a robber. So what's envisioned here is kind of a walled or fenced enclosure in which the sheep were brought by night to keep them safe. The only way to get in was a break in the wall or the hedge or the enclosure. And at the door, the watchman or the doorkeeper, that's where he would sleep to protect the sheep. That's kind of what's in view here. The entrance, the only entrance would be a break in the wall. But if you wanted to go through it to get to the sheep, you'd have to get past the doorkeeper, the watchman. And if he didn't recognize you to be the genuine article, the real shepherd, the good shepherd, well, you'd have to deal with him. Now, if folks wanted access to the sheep another way, you see, just as it said, they'd have to climb over the wall. But anyone who gained access to the sheep that way illegitimately did not have good motives. That one was a thief and a robber. Sometimes the sheep, they wouldn't cooperate in the course of being stolen. And sometimes the thief would cut the throat of the sheep, rendering it helpless to resist, lift it out of the sheepfold, take it as its own. This is serious business. Now, what's the Lord sharing this with the religious leaders of Israel for? I'll tell you why. I think he's talking about them. They're the thieves and the robbers. The sheep are not theirs. The sheep belong to the good shepherd. The sheep have been allotted to their charge, and they did a miserable job as we found out in Ezekiel 34. And so the Lord is referring to them as those who gained access to his sheep illegitimately, much like a thief and a robber. He who does not enter by the door, and they did not, that one climbs up some other way. They gained entrance. They had access to the people in an unauthorized and illegitimate way. They pumped themselves up as religious leaders of authority and to be respected, but they were never appointed by the chief shepherd. And by the way, neither are they down to this, now down to this very day. I've had many conversations with rabbis, and I always try to do so with respect. When I was a young boy, however, it was beyond respect. It was fear. You never, ever would criticize what a rabbi said. In fact, you never questioned or searched out what a rabbi required. You did not go to Scripture to see whether what the rabbi was requiring of you was consistent with the written Word of God. You just assumed it was. And when I, like the blind man, had my eyes opened and began to see Rabbi Jesus to be the highest authority, I began to sift through his words, the words of the rabbis. And when they were inconsistent, I chose to follow the words of Rabbi Jesus instead of my own rabbis. Well, they don't like that. They don't invite you over for dinner. 
It just kind of ends things. And so that's kind of what's happening here 2,000 years ago, but it happens even today in the Jewish community. It's a reference to Israel's false shepherds here. They did not enter by the door. They had no right to. They entered illegitimately. But, verse 2, he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. So the doorkeeper or the watchman would be someone hired often by the shepherd to spend the night making sure the sheep were safe. Again, I told you this one would make his bed right at the uh, entrance to the sheepfold to make sure no predators could gain entrance to it nor access to them. And when the real shepherd comes, and this is a reference not to the false shepherds, but to the true shepherd, the Lord Jesus, when he comes for the sheep, notice, he enters by the door. He doesn't enter illegitimately. He's authorized to have access to the sheep. In other words, the Lord Jesus fulfilled every single Old Testament prophecy pointing to the coming Messiah. He is not a self-appointed Messiah. No, he came fulfilling in perfect obedience every requirement of the law and of the Father. He didn't have to climb over a wall uh, under cover of night. He is the real deal. He's the genuine article. He's the chief shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He is to be recognized as such. Israel's leaders have no right to them. They claim authority, which is illegitimate. This rabbi has authority over them. And to demonstrate it, he goes right through the door because the watchman, the doorkeeper, sees him and bows before him. Yes, yes, good shepherd, Yeshua, Jesus, come in. The sheep are yours. That's what's happening. So verse 3, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So imagine that the night has passed and now it's daytime. It's morning, early. The shepherd gets up. He goes to the sheepfold. He's going to lead his sheep out to pasture. But in the sheepfold are the flocks of usually a number of shepherds. So all the shepherds come approximately at the same time in the morning to lead their sheep out to graze. But how do they distinguish your sheep from someone else's sheep? In this day and down to this very day, I've seen it in Israel. The shepherd can identify his sheep, and he even has assigned a name to each of his sheep. How has he done that? Well, he studies them. He sees the sheep. And its individual characteristics, its personality, who's active, who's lazy, who has spots, who's fully white, who's black, who's brown, all the rest. And he signs names to the sheep, and they hear the name. Folks, do you know that's how the Lord Jesus does us? It's nice to be here with everyone tonight, but don't think you're lost in the crowd. Oh, no, if you come to know the good shepherd, he has studied you. I think the Lord Jesus would have died if you were the only person who he had to die for. He has his eyes on you and me, and he knows our individual characteristics, and that's why it bothers him when we compare ourselves to one another. He's given us our unique ways and temperaments and personalities, and in his mind, he kind of assigns names to us sort of that way. He has identified us according to our unique God-given characteristics, just as the shepherds of old. And that's how they distinguish their sheep. You see, they know their shepherd They hear his voice. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And verse 4, 
When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. Now, this is interesting. When you see shepherds in many countries, they are behind their sheep. They're kind of whipping them from behind. But in the Middle East, the shepherd leads the sheep from the front. It's very interesting. If you go to New Zealand or something like that where they have sheep, you won't see this. Only in the Middle East, in Israel. The shepherd leads from the front. This is a great picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. It says here, the sheep follow him because they know his voice. He goes a ahead of them. They follow because he's familiar to them. He is always out in front of the sheep as their Savior and guide. The Lord Jesus does not ask us to go where he has not gone. The Lord Jesus, in taking the lead, anticipates everything that will come our way. Nothing, not the greatest tragedy that may befall us, has taken the chief shepherd by surprise. He sees it. And you know what he does from the lead position? He leads them beside still waters. Psalm 23. You know, they may, they, they, they may die in flood waters. They may drink from poisonous waters. No, he always leads from the front to make sure they're safe and sound. But it's different for others. Verse 5, a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. So the image is of the sheep. It's by day now. They're out there grazing in the pasture. It could be that the shepherd is apart from them at this point. A stranger comes upon them and calls to them. He wants to steal them. He wants to make them his own. But the sheep do not go. They, they do not recognize the stranger's voice. They don't know their voice. They know the voice of the true shepherd. Would that we, sheep of the Lord's fold, would that we become so familiar with his voice as communicated to us in Scripture that when a stranger tries to tempt us away from him through false teaching or false religion or something like that, we, like these sheep, would shudder and turn and run, not recognizing the stranger's voice. That doesn't fit Scripture. That's not consistent with Scripture. I don't care how attractive the stranger is. That's not the voice of my shepherd. And so they don't follow the stranger. Now, verse 6, this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them. So you see, I know it's a figure of speech because that's what it says in verse 6. Now, why did the Lord, remember, he's still speaking to the false shepherds of Israel. Why didn't he just spit it out? Why is he getting creative here with a uh, figure of speech? Well, in the prior chapter, he spoke quite simply and clearly and what they do with it. They rejected it, and now he's speaking kind of a parable, sort of a kind of an allegory, sort of a figure of speech. And do they get it? No. Look, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Now, that's quite ironic because back in the previous chapter, chapter 9, verse 40, we read, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Well, the answer is, yeah, you are. You're blind. They're so blind, they did not see their blindness. So Jesus said to them again, verse 7, truly, truly, there it is again, amen, amen. I say to you, I am 
You see, there's another one of the great I am statements. There's seven of them in John's gospel. I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. It doesn't say a door, does it? It says the door, definite article. You know what the Lord is saying? There's no possibility of gaining entrance to my sheepfold where you will be saved, safe and sound and satisfied. There's no possibility except through the door. One entrance way, I am the door. And in verse 8, all who came before me, the Lord said, are thieves and robbers. That's what he's calling the Jewish religious leaders. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. Verse 9, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So here the Lord is mixing up figurative language with plain and simple literal language. I know he's using the image of a shepherd and sheep in a sheepfold, but he's not talking about sheep, is he? He's talking about people. And he's saying to people, if you come through me, you will be saved. I am the means by which you can enter into a safe, secure, and satisfying fold. You have to come through me, and then you'll be saved. You see, it's all about the Lord Jesus. Christianity, in case you're wondering, is not about creeds. It's not about buildings. It's not about liturgy. Christianity is about Christ. Christ the center. He is the door. We must enter by Christ. Now, contrary to what some are teaching today, <laughs> I think this message, the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, is given to anyone who wills. I don't think the Lord limits it in any way. I think if it's limited, it's by our lack of faith. That's a choice each of us has to make. But his, his invitation is universal. It's to receive him by faith. It's a personal act. And without it, there is no salvation. In verse 10, the Lord says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I was, uh, I was uh, lost as a goose, as a sheep, <laughs> in uh, 1973. I was in the military barracks, and I was crying out to the Lord for help. I had heard about him from a friend in the barracks who was pointing me to Jesus. And uh, I remember reading in the Bible one night, and I came upon this verse, John 10.10. 10. I came to give life and give it abundantly. Oh, it just stopped me dead in my tracks because I thought, wow, that's what I'm looking for. I'm alive, but it's on a very low level of living. This spoke of an abundant life. If you're wondering why Jesus came, I'll tell you why he came. He came to give to those who already have life a quality of life that so far exceeds a normal existence that we will worship and praise him for the rest of our days. He came to give us an abundant life. And you know what that means? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean the long life. Today I, was, I visited a church member, a wonderful man who it looks like we'll probably go home with the Lord maybe before the day is over. Um, he, he's, he's, he's at that point. He's in his 40s. Abundant life does not mean long life. Abundant life does not necessarily mean the healthy life. Many of our people are afflicted with illnesses of various kinds. 
And abundant life does, does not mean a wealthy life. <laughs> well, what then does it mean? It means the contented life. It means for as long as I have here, no matter what befalls me, I have found a measure of contentment and satisfaction in all of this. I'm forgiven, no matter what. Well, cancer can take me. I understand that. An employer can lay me off. I got that. Some maniac on the road can plow into me and shorten my life, for sure. But nobody can rob me of my pardon. It is secured by the blood of Christ. <clears throat> nobody could rob uh, me of future hope. I know where I'm going. Jesus is eternal, and he promised I'll be with him in eternity. Now, here's another thing that nothing, no circumstance can interfere with. God has the capacity to use all things for the good, but not for everybody. Oh, no, 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 no. To those who are called according to his purpose, to those who love him. Those are believers. Those are Christians. I don't understand always the ways of God. I don't. How could a finite being comprehend fully an infinite deity? I, I don't. But I've learned to trust him, haven't you? But I want to tell you, I don't trust him by faith. It's logic. Why would he give me his only begotten son if with him he wasn't prepared to give me all that I need along with him? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he gave his own son, surely he'll give me, he'll sustain me in all other lesser ways. It's not a measure of faith. That's just logic. Therefore, I know no matter what comes my way, I prefer pleasure over pain just like you. But if it's pain, I know God has the capacity to use that for good. So the abundant life, don't you see? The abundant life is a contented life. It's a life of understanding. Can I tell you three fundamental questions most people don't have good answers to? Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? But I got answers to all three. I think people are on a quest for answers to those questions. Who am I? What is my purpose? Some people say it's to get all the gusto while you're here. Well, I used to think that. But now I realized, oh, no way. It is to enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ here and represent him to others. I know what my purpose is. I know who I am. I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. And I know where I'm going. He who has the Son has the life. You see, that, that's the abundant life. We're not walking around like... Uh, the walking dead, good night. We live a purposeful existence with a hopeful future and a forgiven past. That's the abundant life, no matter what may come our way. That's what the Lord Jesus said he came to do. And the context of this is amazing because in the last chapter, false shepherds excommunicated a needy man. He didn't buy the party line. They threw him out of their house of worship. But the, Je the Lord Jesus says, by contrast, I came, not like those thieves who come to steal, kill, and destroy. I came to give abundant life. That's what he said. The thieves take life. The Lord came to give it. And so he says in verse 11, hey, this is powerful. Listen, I am. Now, here's another I am statement. This is the fourth of the seven I am statements in John's gospel. This one, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Under the old system, sheep die for the shepherd. Under the new covenant, <laughs> the good shepherd dies for the sheep. 
Now, a shepherd intervening on behalf of his sheep and maybe risking his life to save them is not unusual even today. But this is different. If the shepherd died in the course of protecting his sheep, his death would be accidental. This shepherd's death was not accidental. It was intentional. The good shepherd shepherd specifically came to lay down his life. Notice what it says. For his sheep. You know what that means? Jesus didn't come as a martyr. He came as a substitute. He laid his life down for the sheep. Folks, this is speaking of what we call substitutionary atonement, which simply means Jesus came to take his place on the cross in place of you and me. That's what it means. That's what it means. Then he goes on to say, hey, by the way, at the end of your life, we don't know when it is, a lady visited us on Christmas Eve. She was 35 years old. Thank God she heard the gospel message, accepted the Lord Jesus as her Savior and was saved. And she passed away. John Mark, was it yesterday? 35 years old. You don't know how much time you have. I don't know how much time I have. So I want to tell you this. At the end of your life, and you don't know when it's going to come, it'll be absolutely of no benefit to you that Jesus is the good shepherd. Unless you become one of his sheep now while you have a chance. After you die, it's too late. Don't play with this. This is serious. So the Lord says in verse 12, he's a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep. He sees the wolf coming. He leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees, the hired hand, flees because he's a hired hand. He's not concerned about the sheep. You know what the Lord is saying? He's distinguishing himself as owner of the sheep from those who are just hired. When ownership sets in, the owner has a deep, sincere, unending personal interest in the welfare of the sheep. I am thrilled to say, if you're a Christian, you're owned because you've been bought. That's what redemption means. You've been redeemed. What's the price? The blood of God's only begotten son. Boy, that tells you how much he values you and me. He didn't bargain for us and he didn't get us cheap. It cost him his life to buy us, to redeem us. But now that he has, he owns us. Some people are nervous about that. I love it because if he owns us, you, you are not your responsibility. You're his responsibility. So you say, I don't know how I'm going to make it through the day, and finances are short, and I don't feel too good, and all the rest. Absolutely. But that's a good time for you to say, but I'm not my responsibility. I'm owned by the sheep. You know what the hired person does? The hired person flees when I'm in trouble. The hired person doesn't want to get his hands dirty. He doesn't want to mess with my stuff. But the good shepherd bought me. And therefore, has an interest in bringing me forth. Folks, that's our assurance that we're going to make it through. We've been redeemed by a price. It's the blood of the Lamb. Who says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. You know what he's saying? The good shepherd knows his sheep in the same sense in which the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father. That marvelous communion, which was with Father and Son from eternity past into eternity future, only interrupted for a spell on the cross when the Son bore my sin and yours. 
That exquisite fellowship and communion between father and son is the paradigm by which the good shepherd says, that's the relationship you and I can have. That kind of fellowship, that kind of intimacy. Now the Lord says in verse 16, I have other sheep. What does that mean? Folks, don't hate me for this. He's only been speaking to Jews right now. Don't hate me. I'm just reading the Bible. Okay, I'm interpreting it through Jewish eyes. But I think it's accurate. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. To who first? I didn't write that. That's in the Bible, right? To the Jew first. Here he is right here. Now, by the way, that does not mean first and then someone else second. It means first as an order of priority. Someday when we have nothing to do, I'll prove it to you. For now, just humor me by not leaving. The sheep in the fold at this present are Jews. He came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But now, verse 16, this is good for you guys. I have other sheep. Who are they? You guys. <laughs> You're the other sheep. It's Gentile people, non-Jewish people, which are not of this fold. That's what it says. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And here is unity in diversity. You get Jews and Gentiles hanging out together in a small way. Here we are tonight, folks. It's wonderful. Now, the gap between Jews and Gentiles is very, very great. But the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd, says, I'll bridge the gap. And what's the bridge? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. That levels the playing field. Jews have no special privilege. Gentiles are not left out. We come to the foot of the cross as sinners in need of a Savior. But that message is for Jews and Gentiles. And when a Jew accepts that, and when a Gentile accepts that, we become sheep of one shepherd and one fold. One flock with one shepherd. In verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. You know, as the Lord hung on the cross, you know about this, people passed by, they despised him as forsaken by the Father. But the contrary, the opposite is absolutely the case. He's loved by the Father. He wasn't forsaken by the Father. He's loved by the Father. And here in verse 17, Jesus, the good shepherd, you know what he's doing? He's predicting his resurrection. I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. That's the resurrection. Now, folks, if Jesus, the good shepherd, only died, that's all, he only died for his sheep, we'd still be in a heap of trouble. When a shepherd is out there, here's a ravenous wolf. The shepherd gets in between the wolf and the sheep, and the wolf devours the shepherd instead of the sheep. That really uh, caring shepherd offered his life, but, he, but it's gone. And now the sheep are still lost, still in jeopardy, still subject to being eaten by wolves. You see what I mean? If the good shepherd Jesus only died, we are in a heap of trouble. But there's more to it. It's not just the cross. It's also the empty tomb. It's empty. That means the chief shepherd not only died as a substitute for my sin, but he lives today. You know what he does? He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He stands in the gap. He protects us. He's going to ensure our safe voyage to an ultimate sheepfold. You talk about a great place to be. 
So the Lord Jesus here predicts his resurrection. By the way, he's the only shepherd who could do this. Shepherds have died for their sheep, but he's the only one who was able to offer his life and then take it up again. He has that authority. Now, verse 18, this is our last verse. No one has taken it away from me. Did you know that? No one could do that. No one has taken his life away from him. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Folks, Jesus, the good shepherd, had the power to prevent his sufferings. He chose instead voluntarily to submit to it so that the sheep, you and I, would not have to suffer for our sin. I'm telling you, Jesus is the good shepherd. Run to him, my fellow sheep. He knows you by name. He cares for you. He wants to bring you forth. The Bible oftentimes uh, speaks of God's people as sheep. I don't think it's a compliment. Sheep are not smart. They often wander off. They are prone to wander. That is so like us, someone wrote a hymn about it. They're constantly in need of the shepherd's watch, care, and attentions, as you and I are. They're continuously subject to danger and thieves and wolves and storms of life and all the rest. I'm happy, though I'm needy, not so smart. I'm defenseless. I'm really happy to be a sheep in the sheepfold of Jesus, the good shepherd. Aren't you? I hope so. You know, uh, when I was a new believer, I used to sing a hymn, and it's called Savior, Like a Shepherd, Lead Us. And uh, we're going to sing it. But before we do, I want to tell you a story. You may not have heard of a man named Ira Stanky. He lived in the 1800s. And he was a uh, close friend of Dwight L. Moody, D.L. Moody, a great evangelist, giant in his day, Moody. They would do public meetings together. Of course, D.L. Moody would preach and Iris Stanky would sing. And on one public gathering, he, he, he sang this beautiful hymn, Savior, Like a Shepherd Lead Us. And at the end of the meeting, a stranger came up to him, said, Mr. Stanky, uh, Uh, did you serve in the Union Army? He said, yes. And the man said, did you serve at such and such place at such and such time? And Stanky said, yes. The man said, I served in the Confederate Army. I came upon you one night. I pointed my gun at you. And I was one step away from pulling the trigger and taking your life. But then I heard you sing, Savior, like a shepherd, lead me. And he said, it brought me back to my childhood because my mother used to sing that to us all the time. And he said, I couldn't take your life when I heard you sing that. The singing of Savior, like a shepherd, lead us, saved Iris Stanky's life. But taking the hero of that hymn, Jesus the Good Shepherd, as your personal Savior, will save your eternal life. That's the way it is. Beautiful, beautiful words. And I, I tried singing them at home. I, I had the audacity to think I could lead you in this song. And I'm not exaggerating. I have a home office. I was singing it there. And my dog from two, three rooms away <laughs> came running 
And she looked up at me as if to say, is everything okay? And so I told Millie, that's her name, I got the message. I'll call upon my friend and brother, John Mark Benson, to help me with this one. <laughs> Instead, it's a beautiful song. We're going to put the words on the screen for you. And our brother will lead us in singing it together. Thank you. Savior, like a shepherd, lead Much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us. For thy use thy folds prepare. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, Thou hast bought us Thine, we are. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, Thou hast bought us Thine, we are. 